Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have spoken to us 2,000 years ago through your son Jesus verbally. He came and walked among us and taught us about the culture of the kingdom, but now you currently continue to speak through your spirit. Lord, these words are living and active. So I pray that as we look at it this morning that we would sense your spirit among us, that in fact your written word, your spoken word, which was written down, would be living and active to us this morning. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be. In your presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. We continue with the book of Matthew, and as we read things like the Beatitudes, which we've been looking at the last couple of weeks here, the the beginning part of Matthew chapter 5, I think many of us are tempted to believe that in order to really live these things out, we need to distance ourselves from the sin and the stain of the world. That if we're to really please God, if we're to really attain holiness, we must avoid worldliness. I think many of us fall into that trap, and and certainly our world and many religious systems fall into that trap. That's why we have monasteries where people remove themselves from society to, as they would say, live a life devoted to the Lord. And that's kind of the picture of devotion to the Lord in many different spiritual settings, in many different religious settings, is to remove yourself from the stain of the world, to remove yourself from the temptation of the world, to step out of society and devote your life to the Lord, whether that's living as a monk or a nun, or a lot of us have been influenced by the Desert Fathers, those who lived in the second, third, fourth centuries, who wrote these devotionals about kind of stepping away from society living in the desert, living in the woods, living in isolation so that you could commune with God. Some of us are are led towards more of a contemplative, kind of a removed and undistracted life. And there's this appeal to that, that we want to get alone with the Lord. And certainly we are called to get alone with the Lord. We see Jesus doing that. We will see Jesus do that throughout the book of Matthew, that there's a time and a place to kind of step back and to get in isolation, to find some solitude with the Lord. But I think many of us are tempted to believe that in that space we will find more holiness. In that space we will find more maturity. In that space we can have a deeper communion with God. In that space we're able to actually please God more and obey him more and, 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 and be in his presence in a way that we can't in our day-to-day life. But church, what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage this morning is the complete opposite of that. He's actually teaching us that a life dedicated to God isn't distance from the world. Rather, it's a radical presence in the world. Jesus is teaching us that a true life devoted to God, a life that's fully devoted to God, is not a life that's removed from the world. It's not a, it's not a life that steps out of the world, but it's a life that is radically centered in the world. That if we really want to please God and do his will and obey Jesus' commands and, and do all that he tells us to do, we need to have a radical, countercultural presence for him in the world. See, the temptations that we give into are less from the outside and more from the inside. And so we'll never find holiness. We'll never attain holiness by removing ourselves from the temptation of the world. Rather, Jesus is teaching his followers that if you are, in fact, to be my followers, I have sent you into the world to be salt 
and light. And so therefore, you need to learn how to live centered in the world. You need to learn how to live a radical presence in the midst of the world for my glory, for the good of others, and the advancement of my kingdom. You're not going to find holiness. You're not going to find deeper intimacy and communion with God by removing yourself from the world. And again, you may need to do that for a day or a weekend or a week, but that is to launch you back into the world to be a radical presence for Jesus. Let's do a little review here and remember what Jesus has been teaching us. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It's on page 809. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, Jesus is now on the scene doing his public earthly ministry, and he is calling all those who would listen to turn away from their faulty thinking, to turn away from what is false. That's what repent means. It means to turn from what is wrong and turn to what is right. Repent from the faulty thinking of the world, the culture of the world, and come into my kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is proclaiming that a new kingdom, a new culture has arrived. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, he's inviting people to follow him into this new kingdom culture. He's inviting people onto his team. He's saying, we're establishing this new culture here on earth outposts of heaven here on earth, and and I want people on my team. So he invites fishermen to follow him. And then in 23 through the end of the chapter here, he's doing miracles, healing the down and out of society. He's both proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's demonstrating the kingdom of God in power. And then the last couple weeks here, we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. And we saw that Jesus was setting up this this kingdom culture. He was telling his followers what the values of his kingdom are. The value system of his kingdom runs in contradiction to the value system of the world. And he says, those who are in my kingdom, they, they are blessed if they are poor in spirit. They are blessed if they are mourned. They are blessed if they are meek. They are blessed if they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are blessed if they are merciful. They are blessed if they are pure in heart. They are blessed if they're peacemakers. They're blessed if they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. So Jesus is saying there's this new cultural reality, this new expectation of the culture in the kingdom of heaven, and those who embrace this culture, those who embrace this kingdom, they receive blessings from God, this internal spiritual blessing that can wade through any external pressure or circumstance. That regardless of what is happening on the exterior, regardless of what is going on in your life that you can't control, if you center your life in the culture of God's kingdom, you will receive blessings from God. Sometimes those are external. Sometimes God blesses us with external things and gifts and good things. But many times it's just this internal blessing. It's the spirit of peace. It's, it's this ability to live in the midst of cultural conflict with confidence knowing that God is sure and true. But he calls us to share these blessings with others. See, the the whole point of the scriptures is that God has blessed a people to be a blessing to others. Church, we are blessed by God through Jesus Christ for the express purpose of being a blessing to others. In in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created all things and he said it is good and he blessed it. And then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They they took matters into their own hands and they ate the forbidden fruit and sin entered the world and started to unravel this culture that that God had set up. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God broke in and he spoke to Abram before he changed his name to Abraham and said, I will bless you 
and you will be a blessing to the nations. And so the entire story of the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation is God blessing a people. In the Old Testament, it was the Israelites. In the New Testament, it is the church of Jesus Christ. He's blessing a people for the purpose of them being a blessing to the peoples of the earth. To reestablish the glorious reign and rule of God on earth. To bring back a taste of perfection that was in the Garden of Eden to earth. And so Jesus here is teaching his followers that if they are to enter his culture, enter his kingdom, they will be blessed. And the purpose for that blessing is it's specifically to be a blessing to others. To drive this point home, Jesus uses two metaphors in this passage, salt and light. Verses 13 through 16, that's where we're going to camp on today. Let's look at these two metaphors a bit. Let's start with salt. Salt is meant to be scattered as a preservative, a flavor aid, and a medical aid. Salt is meant to be scattered as a preservative, a flavor aid, and a medical aid. I want to talk about each one of those. First of all, it's meant to be scattered. How many of you have been at a restaurant with one of those salt shakers where like a little teenage boy put like a piece of paper over, like unscrewed the top and then put a piece of paper or a napkin over it, screwed it back on so that the next person who comes to that restaurant tries to put salt on their food, it doesn't come out? How many of you have been in that situation? Put your hand up nice and high. I know some of you have. Not many. You've never been to a restaurant and tried to shake the salt out and it got stuck. How many of you have done that to others? Okay, there we go. A couple of you. I did that. that. That's how we had fun up in Grand Marais, the small town that I grew up in. We didn't have much to do, so we went to restaurants and pranked people by blocking the salt. The point is salt is meant to be scattered. Salt in a shaker is of no use to anyone, unless it's in a really nice decorative shaker. And even then, what good is it? Who really cares about your decorative salt shaker? Salt is meant to be scattered. It has to leave the shaker. And as it does, it, it, it flavors food. In the New Testament context, it was one of their primary preservatives. Now, this day and age, we, we have a negative connotation towards preservatives, right? We want food without preservatives. But in their day and age, they didn't have deep freezers. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have a way to preserve the food in the ways that we do. So they often use salt to preserve their meat. But in order to preserve the meat, it had to be scattered, it had to be spread out, it had to be put over the meat. It all, they used it to flavor the meat, much like we do. There's nothing better, and the season is coming, when we can throw a steak on a grill. It's coming, people. In a few months, the snow will be gone, the grills will be on. Grant's excited, so am I. We can put salt and pepper on our steak and season it, and salt brings out the flavor in the steak. If you've ever had steak without salt, you're probably... You're missing out. And then in the New Testament context, salt was also used as a medical aid. It, it would actually be rubbed into wounds to help heal the wounds. It would cause the bacteria, it would draw out the water and the bacteria out of the wound and help to yield the wound. But the first point is that it has to be scattered. Jesus is telling us, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus is using a metaphor of salt for his people, saying that you must be scattered out into the culture, into society. When they heard Jesus compare them to salt, they would have thought of salt as a preservative. They would have thought of salt as a flavor aid, and they would have thought of salt as a medical aid. But again, it has to be, it has to be poured out. It has to be scattered. It has to be used. So church, the point for us, 
point that Jesus is making here is that his people are to be spread out into the societies of the world. We are to be scattered. We talk often at Park Community Church about we do, we do two things primarily. We gather. We gather together on Sunday mornings to worship God, to pursue him, to hear his word, to, to lift our voices in praise of him. And then we gather into small groups throughout the week to edify one another, to study his word to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to do ministry together. But then we scatter. We scatter into our various relational spheres of influence. Each week, we are all dispersed throughout the city, throughout the neighborhoods, to be a witness for Jesus Christ to be a blessing to the nations. God has blessed us with the Beatitudes. He has transformed us. He has introduced us to a new culture. And then he scatters his people. See, Jesus didn't set up a megachurch and call everyone into it. He didn't say, hey, now that we got this new community with this new culture, we got this new church, I have these disciples, these followers, let's kind of hunker down together Let's care for one another. Let's keep studying God's word together. Let's learn the Old Testament law together. Let's practice this together. Let's be an isolated, insular community. No, he said, come together and let's learn. There's, there's moments of teaching. There's moments of gathering in the scriptures. But the primary mode of operation for the disciples was to scatter. And it was to scatter into the culture. They were to get out of the church building, out of the church walls, out of their small groups, and into society, working the gospel into every nook and cranny of society to preserve the gospel. See, the reality of the world is that it is decaying without God. There's cultural decay all around us. Societies rise and societies fall, and throughout the history of the world, societies that, that don't honor the biblical truth of God's culture eventually implode. Because the culture of the world is opposite than the culture of the kingdom. When we see the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes given here, the culture of the world is opposite of that. And so Jesus is saying, I am sending you out, I am scattering you out into the culture as salt to preserve the culture of God, to preserve the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This glorious taste of, of true humanity, of what mankind was really created to be and to do, is now here among you in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm teaching you how to live into this kingdom reality. And I am sending you into a dark, decaying world and society that you could preserve the goodness of God. Church, we live our lives scattered for the glory of God, for the good of others, for the advancement of his gospel. Jesus has called us out. So we gather for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings or an hour and 15 minutes. It depends on how long-winded the preacher is that morning. That's woefully inadequate to fulfill this command. I know many, many people think, oh, if only I could be at church more, if only I could be in that, those holy spaces more, if only I could worship more. And Jesus is saying, in order to live a life devoted to me, in order to actually live out my commands, you need to go. You need to scatter. You need to preserve the gospel of God in the decaying culture of the world. Now, salt is also a flavor aid. I mean, I mentioned this already, right? It flavors our food. Salt in food is good. And if you are older and dealing with congestive heart failure, with which some people in our church are, you know that you have to start backing off salt. And that's a 
challenge and an issue. But earlier on, younger in your life, you can add more salt and it adds more flavor and it gives more taste to things. So I think Jesus here, in using salt, the disciples are hearing this, and Jesus modeled this for us too, that, that can we actually bring flavor into our relational spheres of influence, like conversational flavor. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 4, the beginning part. He says, let your, let your speech always be seasoned with salt and grace. And so, church, if we actually want to live into the culture, if we want to bring the kingdom of God out into the culture, I think we need to learn how to add flavor to our speech, flavor to our lives. This means that we, mean, we may need to work on how do we engage our relational spheres of influence. What I mean by relational sphere of influence is where do you work, where do you sleep, where do you eat, where do you play? The people who you see often, whether it's your immediate family, your extended family, your neighborhood, your coworkers, your friends, those people that God has scattered you out into their sphere, into those spheres of influences, can you learn how to add flavor to the conversation? Like if you work with a bunch of people who love baseball, I'm going to go with that because I love baseball. Even though you don't love baseball, maybe you need to learn a little bit about baseball so that you can engage your coworkers on their turf so that you could add some flavor to the conversation. The way that salt spices up a steak and, and brings out the flavors and people enjoy a steak because of the, the way that steak brings out flavor. Do people enjoy your presence because you bring out flavor? You actually bring out a robustness in that group of people. If you work with or in your neighborhood, there's a bunch of people who are really concerned about the local elementary school, but you don't have kids. Well, can, can you learn a little bit about what they're dealing with, what their issues are, so you can actually add something into that conversation. To have flavorful conversation, it's gospel fluency. This means that we can bring Jesus into the everyday rhythms of life. There's a great book out there by a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt called Gospel Fluency, and the subtitle is How to Speak Jesus into the Everyday Truths of Life. And so Jesus, when he's saying that we are, we are called to be salt we are to be scattered, we are to work as a preservative, and we are to go into our relational spheres of influence engaging people with conversation, winning them over with conversation. And sometimes they're going to reject us, right? I mean, this is coming right out of verses 10, 11, and 12 where Jesus says that if you do good for righteousness' sake, you will be persecuted. Just because you've learned how to add flavor to the conversation doesn't mean that everyone's going to want to be your best friend. People are going to want to reject you. But, but I think there's a challenge for us here, church, to learn how do we engage people? How do we meet people on their turf? How do we, like salt, adds flavor to a steak? How do we, like salt, add flavor to the conversation, to our relational spheres of influence, regardless of whether we're rejected or not? And then lastly, a medical aid. Again, in the, first in the New Testament, in the first century here, they would use salt as a medical aid, as a way to heal wounds. So I think Jesus, as he's telling us that you are the salt of the earth, that we are actually God's, God's hand in bringing healing to the nations. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 25, 23 and 24. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And I think Jesus is saying, if you're my followers, you're to do what I do. He's sending us out as a medical aid to the sick, dying, depressed, hurting, broken world. So church, we go out proclaiming like Jesus did in verse 17, he proclaimed. In verse 23, he proclaimed and he taught. Proclaiming, that's adding flavor to the conversation, but also to doing working as a medical aid, as he did in 23 and 24. Praying for people who are sick. Praying for people who are diseased. Praying for people who are broken. We are God's hands and feet on earth. There's a song that my wife and I currently have been listening to a lot and love. It's called, Christ Has No Body Now But Yours. I encourage you, write that down and go listen to it. It's by the Porter's Gate. Christ has no body now but yours. We are the body of Christ. We gather together to worship him, but we also scatter into society so that people would taste and see that the Lord is good through our witness. This is why we as a church, our third identity is neighbors and witnesses who proclaim the gospel in word and deed. We believe that the vast majority of our lives are to be sent as a scattered people into the world, living as neighbors and witnesses who are proclaiming the goodness of God in both word, that's a flavor aid, and deed, that's a medical aid, doing things for people on their behalf. Now, a little note here about the, those scientific people here are probably wondering, well, is Jesus even, can he be trusted? Because we all know that salt can't actually lose its saltiness, right? Verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, the reality is salt can't lose its saltiness, but it can be diluted to the point of becoming useless. Jesus isn't going against science here, saying you can remove the salt from salt. He's saying that salt can become so diluted, and in the, in the first century, this, this would happen. They used salt often in a lot of things, and if it got mixed in with salt, or if it got mixed in with sand or other white substance that wasn't salt, it could become so diluted that you could no longer taste the salt. It would no longer preserve your food. It was not good for anything, and so it would be thrown out. They would throw their trash out on the front steps, and so people would come by and trample over the trash. That's what Jesus is saying. That we can become so deluded with the things of the world, so deluded with our own concerns and cares, that salt loses its taste. You may still be a Christian. Your faith may, may in Jesus may have saved you, but you may be an ineffective witness because you become so deluded with cares and concerns of the world. And so Jesus here is giving a challenge. He's saying, you are salt, if you are in Jesus, you are salt. You don't need to become salt. You don't, you don't get salt. You are salt. But salt can become diluted to the point of being trampled under feet. Let's look at an example of this in 1 John chapter 2. Flip there with me. It's on page 1021 in the Pew Bible. Now remember, John is among these hearing this teaching. He was among the core four who were called in Matthew chapter 4. He heard Jesus' teachings. He, he lived life close to Jesus. And here John picks up on this idea of what it looks like to lose our saltiness. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 
He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see that tension there? John, John is saying that we're, we're in the world and we're centered in the world and we are to be immersed in the world as a radical witness to the world, but countercultural to the world. We embrace the culture of the kingdom of heaven, not the culture of the world. And so we can lose our saltiness if we are focused on the desires of the flesh. And flesh here in this context is equal to the sinful nature. Like, I want what I want when I want it, how I want it for my own pleasure, my own good, my own advancement. That's the desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes is similar. I see that. It looks pleasing to me. I want it. And I want it now. And I want it my way. I don't care whether or not I get it God's way. I just want it my way. And the pride of possessions. I mean, that's the culture of the world, right? Let's acquire. Let's get. Let's care for. Let's Let's use things for our own benefit and pleasure. John here is saying these things are in danger of diluting the salt so much that we're ineffective. So church, a, a question for us, a question for you to consider. Are you more concerned with the desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes, and the pride of your possessions, or with living like salt scattered among your relational spheres of influence? Do some serious heart searching and assessment on that and do that with those close to you. I was talking to somebody from our church this last week who just had a great conversation with their spouse. They were talking about how they've seen each other grow up in the Lord. And this person said, oh, five years ago when we got married, I was so, I was so wrapped up into pride of possessions. He said, I still like things. I still like stuff. I like to care for things. I like to take care of but now my wife has helped me to learn how to use those possessions for the good of others, to hold all things with open hands. That's what it looks like to live in the culture of the kingdom of God rather than the culture of the kingdom of earth. And so assess your life honestly and openly and with others. And let's encourage one another to walk in the ways of the Lord, that our salt wouldn't lose our saltiness, but that it would continue to preserve that it would continue to be a flavor aid and a medical aid. The next metaphor that Jesus uses, let's keep going here, is light. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus is saying that light is meant to be elevated in order to give sight to the otherwise sightless, right? I mean, we all know this. You don't, you don't turn on a lamp and put it down on the corner in the ground and cover it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Lights are to be put up on a hill or they're to be elevated. That's why our lights are hanging. That's why they're in the ceiling. That's why we have lamp stands because a light to be most effective must be lifted up so that it, so that it gives light to the darkness so that it can be seen. Jesus here is calling us out. Again, he's scattered us into the culture to do good works that others would see God and give him glory. And there's an interesting note here in that Jesus calls us to do good works publicly in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount. And then as we keep going, look over at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. 
He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Seems contradictory, does it not? Like, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus just told us to do our good works in public so that other people could see it. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of doing your good works publicly. Don't let other people see it. Which is it? And in fact, people who disagree with the Bible and think the Bible is full of contradictions will often point to those two teachings within the same sermon to say Jesus contradicted himself. He can't be trusted. But all it takes is looking at the context to understand here what Jesus is saying. In Matthew 5, 16, he's coming out of the Beatitudes and he's coming out of, out of warning people that they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's saying there's certain people who will persecute you for, for living into the kingdom of God and the culture of the kingdom and for doing good works. You will be persecuted. He's saying among those people, let your light shine. When they want to take everything from you, when they want to persecute you for doing good, for proclaiming Jesus, for caring for the poor and the lost and the sick and the broken because they feel, they feel threatened by this grassroots movement which is sure to come. When, when they come at you, continue to do your good works and they will see God your Father. They will see Christ in you, the hope of glory, and they will worship God. In the context of Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he compares it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are doing good works on purpose for the approval and praise of others. So what's your motivation for good works? Is your motivation for good works to actually serve those who are needed? And, and are you doing it in a way where it points others to the glory of God? When you serve, when you do good deeds, do you actually open up your mouth and speak about Jesus? If you're just doing good deeds and you're never talking about Jesus, you're not leading anyone into eternal life. You're not, as verse 16 says, giving glory to the Father who is in heaven. You're just doing good things for people and it may be out of your own self-guilt or it may be out of who knows what it's out of. Jesus is saying that we need, to, we need to open up our mouths and speak as we do good deeds. We are then like a light who shines the glory of God. And we don't do good deeds, charitable works, trying to get others to give us affirmation and praise. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets. See, that's the comparison. He's comparing the, the hypocrites in the synagogues and the streets, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are patting themselves on the back, broadcasting to everyone, look at how good we're, we're doing. We're serving God. We're giving our things away. He's contrasting that to those who are living in the midst of the Beatitudes being persecuted. So Jesus is calling us here to, to elevate our light, to do good works in the name of Jesus so that people would see God the Father and give him praise. Question for us, church. Do you do good out of obligation or seeking approval from God or others? Or simply for the sake of blessing others with the purpose of having them encounter Christ and give glory to God? Again, a question for you to consider. And don't consider it in isolation. Consider it with a spouse. Consider it with a roommate. Consider it with a community group. Consider it with a group of friends. What's the, what's the posture of your heart towards good works? Is it, oh, I don't want to let God down and I want God to think good of me so I got to do good works or, 
or I want others to think highly of me, so therefore I'm going to do good works and they will notice? Or is it seeing the decaying culture and brokenness around you and being reminded that Jesus has called us to be salt and light to that culture for his glory? Again, another note here, we are the light of the world. Jesus says, you are the light of the world in verse 14. This is the truth of the gospel church. We don't, we don't like turn the light on and off or, or get more light. He's saying, if you are in me, if you have come to me, and Jesus invites us, all who are thirsty, come to me. If you come to me, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This will be the MO of your life as you continue to embrace the culture of God's kingdom. I've made you something that you can't be on your own. God shining through us to bless the world. Church, we are blessed for the express purpose of being a blessing to others. A life devoted to God is not a life removed from the world. It's a life centered in the world for God's glory, learning how to live in our day-to-day reality, Monday to Friday at work, with God by your side, with Jesus leading you, with Jesus empowering you to be salt and light. As we close down this morning, I want a gospel closure. I want us to just look at how Jesus now fulfills this command, how Jesus is the ultimate light of the world, the one who sets our lives on fire for his glory. So if you would, let's just look at a couple passages. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 5 and 19 through 22. It's on page 619 in the Pew Bible. Here's an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Jesus. I think there's this first coming and a second coming, and we're living in this already not yet kingdom. And so this is partially true now, and it will be fully true in the future. Listen to this prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 60, starting in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, a culture in decay. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. You shall see You shall taste and see that the Lord is good and you yourselves will become radiant. God will work through you and cause you to be a light to the nations because the abundance of the seas shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And jump over to verse 19. Listen to this prophecy about Jesus. Partially true now will be fully true in the future. The sun shall be no more your light by day nor your brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, 
in its time, I will hasten it. See, so God's promise there, this prophetic promise in Jesus, a, a light has dawned in John chapter 1. In Christmas, we often look at the passage that says, a light has come into the world. The world has not understood it, but to those who he, have called him, he has made a light, them a light to the nations. Flip back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. A prophecy from earlier in Isaiah. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. See how Jesus has come to radiate the glory of God into a dark and decaying world. He is the ultimate light calling us to himself and transforming us to be outposts of his light on the earth. And then lastly, let's look at Revelation 22. It's on page 1042. So we're already tasting the, the light of God. We're seeing his light in the darkness, but there's a glorious day coming in the future. Listen to how John tells us about this in Revelation. John 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystals flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no more light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forevermore. God, we thank you for being the light of the world, for shining in our darkness. Lord, you, you have burst on the scene into all of our lives and you are shining your radiant light into our souls. I pray that we would receive it this morning. And God, as we receive your many blessings, your abundant blessings, I pray that we would bless others in the name of Jesus. May you empower us to go out living as scattered salt, preserving the kingdom of God in a decaying culture, adding the flavor of gospel conversation and language to our spheres of influence in serving as medical aids to the hurt, the broken, the wounded. God, may we be a city set on a hill so that others could see your glory for miles off. May you shine this light through us, Lord. We are promised that there will come a day when we don't need the sun because the glory of, the God, of God will be so evident among us. Lord, help us to wait expectantly for that day and to do our job now for your glory, the good of others, and the advancement of your gospels, we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.